Scripture today will be from Luke chapter 6, verses 36 to 38. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. able to get my mask off this time. That's good. <laughs> I, I kind of joked about it. The truth is I'm, I'm thankful for the mask, and I'm thankful that, that we have a way to sort of protect each other the best way we can, and I'm thankful most of all for you and your willingness to wear these masks and to stay distance and to do all the things that we're asking you to do to be a part of worship today, whether you're here or watching online. It, it, it's not. I mean, we've said it. It's not an easy time, and I appreciate our leaders, our shepherds, and the tough decisions they are making for the health and well-being spiritually and physically and emotionally of the whole congregation. There's so much to consider, and so I'm, I'm thankful for the decisions that leaders are making, and I'm thankful for you and your willingness to cooperate and, and to submit to those decisions. It is good to be together, whether we are here in this room or watching online. That is one of the great things about this time. Jeff talked to us about at just the right time. Well, one of the great things about this time is we have the technology, we have the ability to continue to worship, to continue to be involved in ministry. We don't just have to sit on our hands and do nothing. And that is a great blessing for which we should be most thankful. Well, if you've gone through Financial Peace University. I know many of you have. You probably have heard Dave Ramsey and the analogy that he uses to describe the moral neutrality of money. He holds up a brick and he says, money is like this brick. It is amoral. It has no morals. It's neither good nor bad. But when you put it in the hands of certain people, it takes on meaning. He goes on to say that I can take this brick and throw it through a window and cause damage. I can hurl it at someone and hurt someone, or I can use this brick to build a hospital or a church building or a home. You see, the brick doesn't care. We decide what is done with the money the resources we have. And while that's true, I think, about money, I think it's also true about some other things. I think it's true, at least very similar, to how we use our words, to how we use our actions, to how we use our very lives. You see, you have agency. You have the decision to choose what you say, how you act, how you behave, where you put your life, and what you do with your life. And you can do 
things with your life and you can say things and you can act in certain ways that hurt people or you can invest your life and do things and say things that help people. And so you can use all that you have, all that God has given you. You can use your resources to either build walls or you can use them to build bridges. And that's a big question. And that's the question we want to look at today. If you have a Bible, look at John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we see this encounter that Jesus has. The religious leaders of the day, they are the authorities, and they love to try to get Jesus backed into a corner, and this is a great example of their efforts to do that. Now, if you have your Bible open, you may see a note there that says, most early manuscripts don't have this passage. And that's true. Most of the early manuscripts don't have this particular passage. However, many, many of the manuscripts do have this passage. In fact, it's interesting, some of the manuscripts actually have this narrative in a different place in John's Gospel. Some even at the end of John's Gospel. A few manuscripts even have this narrative in Luke's Gospel. But one thing is sure. Most scholars agree about the historical validity of this story, of this narrative. In other words, it happened. It happened. And it's an important story because it reveals the heart of Jesus. And it also confronts us with this choice we have to make daily. This choice of will I be a wall builder or will I be a bridge builder? Will I use my words and my actions, my life to harm people, to keep my distance from people, to hurt people, or will I use those things to help people? to bless people while I build bridges. And so it's an important story, but the story also does something else. And this is the little bit uncomfortable part. It confronts us not just with this choice we have to make daily, it confronts us with our own sinfulness, our own humanity, our own flaws. It's an important story. So it opens up this way in John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, talking about Jesus, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. So the lawyers and the Pharisees, they are the religious authorities during Jesus' day. And they admired and cherished and valued the law of Moses. But more than that, they admired and valued and loved their own adherence to the law of Moses. In fact, they wore it as a badge of honor so the world could see how righteous they were, how sound they were, how godly they were. And so they don't like Jesus because he seems to be just the opposite of them. They don't like what Jesus is teaching about love and mercy and forgiveness. They don't like the nature of this kingdom that he is revealing through his teachings and words. They don't like that people are following him, the appeal that he has to people. They don't like that Jesus claims to be from God. They really don't like anything about Jesus. They certainly don't like when he challenged their own identity, their own self-righteousness. 
And so they often tried to trap Jesus, just outsmart him, get Jesus to say something so outlandish that his followers would say, okay, I don't know if we can still follow this guy. Or get him to contradict himself so that his followers would say, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't have credibility. Maybe we should follow someone else. In their minds, if they could just get him to stumble, then all this Messiah talk would go away. And so would these people following him, and eventually so would Jesus. And so they marched this woman in front of Jesus. The text says that this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She's had an affair. And they parade her out in front of Jesus. But this is not a private conversation about a sensitive subject. This is public humiliation. They don't care about this woman. They don't even really see this woman. They are just using this woman to get to Jesus. You see their motive very clearly. One of the things that we see from wall builders is that they dehumanize other people. You see, when I dehumanize someone else, and when we dehumanize someone else, it's so much easier to justify harsh treatment toward them because they aren't like us. In fact, they're a little subhuman. And scholars have done research on this. And what they have found is that when people groups or individuals or countries dehumanize other individuals or people groups or countries then they create mental distance that sounds like a wall builder doesn't it create mental distance so then I don't feel so bad about treating those people or that person or that group badly because after all they aren't like us They have less value than us. And what happens then is we slap a dehumanizing label on them. You know some of those labels. And we refer to them not as individuals, not as people, but as the label. And that, in our mind, makes us feel okay about treating them a certain way. You see this all the time. This woman's accusers didn't mention her name. My guess is they didn't even know her name. To them, she was a nobody. She was subhuman. She was just a means to a desired end. So they put a label on her. She was an adulteress. She was a sinner. Or maybe even worse labels, more offensive labels. And they used her to trap Jesus. There is no doubt that this woman was filled with shame and guilt and embarrassment. Can you imagine being placed before Jesus in all of your ugly sinfulness? Well, someone sees that and they say, well, she's really just getting what she deserved, isn't she? Do the crime, you gotta do the time. You know, the truth is, one day we will stand before Jesus in all of our ugly sinfulness. Romans 14 says that one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and we will give an account for our life. Do you want what you deserve? In that moment, that eternal moment, do you want what's coming to you? I don't. Not at all. 
I want God to look at me and all my ugly sinfulness and say, I don't even see that. All I see is the blood of my precious son covering you. I don't see those sins. I see you holy and pure. Well, that's not the way her accuser saw this woman. They barely saw her at all. But when they did look, they saw someone who was guilty, who deserved to be punished. They saw someone who needed to be judged. And so this woman is standing there in front of everyone. Maybe she's wrapped in a bed sheet. I don't know. But really what she's covered in is guilt and shame and embarrassment. And she's probably scared to death. And they say, Jesus, we caught her in the act of adultery. The law says that she deserves to die. What do you say? What do you say? That's the trap. And they're right. The law says in Leviticus 20, verse 10, that she does deserve to die. But so does someone else, right? Read that text. Not just the woman, but the man. Where is the man in this story? Did he slip away? Did he escape? Was he in on it? Was this sort of an entrapment, a double entrapment, entrapping her so so they could then entrap Jesus? Or was he just sort of excused in a good old boy patriarchal system that often victimizes anyone who's not a good old boy. There's no mention of the man. He's dismissed. He's excused. He's nowhere to be found. But the woman is there, and the test is there, and Jesus is confronted. Jesus, what do you say? And if Jesus agrees with the punishment, yes, she deserves to die because that's what the law says, that in the Pharisees' mind, those who follow Jesus will say, whoa, that's heartless, that's cruel, I don't want any part of that. And they will leave him. And Jesus will lose the momentum and the traction he has as the presumed Messiah. If he forgives her, if he offers forgiveness for this woman, then in their minds, that's blasphemy because only God can forgive sins, and so we got you, Jesus. If Jesus lets her go, then what happens? Well, if he lets her go, that means he doesn't care about the law of Moses. He doesn't care about the word of God. And he's soft on sin. We got him. Seems like a perfect trap, doesn't it? So the morally superior crowd stood there, grasping bricks and rocks and stones in their white-knuckled fists, ready to deliver the sentence that the law demanded, that in their minds God demanded. And the woman is standing there, scared to death, trembling in fear, covered in guilt and shame. You see, they had made their decision. Remember I said everyone has a choice to make? Will I build walls or build bridges? Will I use what I have to hurt people or help people? They made their choice. Their choice was, we're going to create distance. We're going to harm. We're going to hurt. We're going to put up a wall of judgment that says very clearly to this woman, you do not belong. You don't belong to us. What would Jesus do? Back in the text, verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. What? (laughs) How strangely unexpected. How odd. 
with the pressure building, the tension so thick, everyone looking at Jesus. What will he, will he say? What is he going to do? What does Jesus do? He stoops down and begins to doodle in the dirt. What in the world are you doing, Jesus? And by the way, what are you writing? As far as I know, this is the only time in the Gospels that we have a record of Jesus writing something. And the natural question is, what is he writing? What is on the ground in front of him? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. We have no idea. Now, there's been all kinds of speculation. Maybe Jesus was writing the woman's sentence. Because in Roman law, when someone was convicted, their sentence had to be written down, it had to be read, and then it was confirmed. So maybe Jesus was writing her sentence. Maybe he was writing a passage, a passage of scripture from the Hebrew Bible. Maybe he was writing an explanation for the answer he was about to give. Maybe he was just doodling to keep everyone from staring at the woman, to distract everyone's attention away from her. Or maybe he was actually writing down the actual, literal, specific sins of the people accusing her. We don't know. We don't know what Jesus wrote, but we know what he said. Back in the text, verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Man, you didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming. I mean, picture this. The judgment-minded bullies holding their rocks and stones and bricks ready to throw at her. The Pharisees proudly celebrating this dilemma that they put Jesus in. The woman trembling in fear, awaiting her fate. It's courtroom drama like you've never seen. And Jesus turns everything upside down and inside out. And he moves the spotlight, the scrutiny off of the woman onto her accusers. And he basically says, be my guest. Go ahead, throw that stone at her if, if you don't have any sin in your life. Go ahead. I mean, think about that. That is quite a risk Jesus is taking because it's not like these people, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, were very contrite. It's not like they were very willing to confess sin. When you stand and sing, they weren't the first ones down to the front. They weren't charter members of any Sinners Anonymous program. Hi, I'm Nathaniel and I'm a sinner. No, that's not what these people did. And so when Jesus says, go ahead, if you don't think you have any sin, there's a chance. Getting caught up in the mob mentality, getting caught up in the groupthink of those around them, that they might actually hurl those stones at this woman. Jesus just let his challenge of self-analysis hang in the thick air then he stooped back down and continued writing in the dirt and now we think knowing more of the context maybe he was writing the specific sins of her accusers as though they needed a reminder 
go ahead, throw a stone if you have no sin in your life, but look right here. Nathaniel lusted after neighbor's wife, gossiped about people in the community, cheated on his taxes, and on and on. Maybe they needed a reminder. So maybe that is what Jesus was doing. You see, the truth is, her accusers knew down deep inside that they were sinners, that they weren't perfect. They had made mistakes. It turns out they were more like this woman than they first thought. And so am I, and so are you. You know the next thing Jesus heard? The next thing Jesus heard is the same thing the woman heard, and that was this sound, the thud. And then another thud, and then another one, and another one. One by one, the stones were dropped, the accusers vacated the area. You see, they realized, they knew, once confronted with their own sinfulness, that they were in no condition to judge her. It was very clear. They weren't the judge. So they drop the stones and they walk away. Verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. That last sentence is so very important. Go now and leave your life of sin. Sometimes when we talk about grace and love and mercy, some people get a little bit twitchy. They get a little bit twitchy. What about sin? Don't forget sin. Listen, Jesus didn't forget sin. He didn't gloss over it. He didn't push it aside. He didn't ignore it. In fact, he called her to a new life. He said, you got to make some changes. you got to leave this life of sin. Put it behind you. We call it repentance. Jesus invited her to live a new life. But I want you to consider the order in which Jesus said what he said to her. He said, I don't condemn you before he said, leave your life of sin. So often I think we get those reversed. And we, with our words and actions, maybe sometimes not even meaning to communicate just the opposite. And what we convey to people is, leave your life of sin and then we won't condemn you. Get your life together, and you can come be a part of us. Do some spiritual house cleaning, and then maybe you'll be okay enough to be accepted around here. Now again, we don't, we don't say those words, but I wonder sometimes if our actions don't convey that. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Before he said, leave your life of sin. Because Jesus knew in that critical moment, he knew exactly what she needed. 
He knew in that moment she didn't need a long lecture. She needed to be loved. Everyone there was ready to throw stones at her. Why join in? What good would that do? Jesus knew what she needed. And my guess is that if she did leave that life of sin, she did so for one reason, because the way Jesus treated her and who he was. You see, her obedience, her transformation was a result, a response of his acceptance, of his mercy, as it should be for us. Our obedience is a response to God's mercy and grace and acceptance of us. And so as we connect with people, with people who have struggles, with people who are sinners like us, with people who maybe live very worldly lives, let's remember, as much as we want to get them to church, the first thing we need to do is get them to Jesus. It's not, hey, clean up your life and come to church. It's encounter Jesus, hopefully through the church, and let him clean up your life. In this story of the woman in John chapter 8, just like we said a couple of weeks ago with Zacchaeus, acceptance came before repentance. Belonging came before becoming. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 verse 4, talking about this very subject, judgment, about judging others. Don't use the grace that you have as a license to judge others. Okay, what do we use God's grace and his kindness for? He says, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. To lead you to repentance. It's a response to who God is, to how God treats us, to Jesus being our advocate when maybe everyone around us is ready to throw stones at us. Maybe you've heard the story of Rosaria Butterfield. At 36, she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University in women's studies. She lived with her same-sex partner. She was part of a, an advocacy group that had very worldly values. She referred to Christians as intellectually impaired the people who sent her hate mail and who held offensive signs at parades to her. That's who Christians were. But everything changed when she met a Christian named Ken and his wife, Floyd. They had a few encounters. On one of the first encounters, this couple, Ken and Floyd, invited her over for dinner. And she went mainly because she was curious But she had a little talk to herself before she went over there, and she said, I am not compromising my values, my identity, my culture. These things that have progressed in my life because of my life's experiences and because of my academic studies and research, I am not moving. I am not yielding. But she was curious, and so she accepted the offer. Here's, in her words, how she describes that dinner. During our meal... I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. I believed at this time that God was dead and that if he ever was alive, the fact of poverty and violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. But Ken's God seemed alive. 
three-dimensional and wise. And Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. She goes on to say, they did something at the mill that was a long Christian history. They invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. We didn't debate worldviews. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. Does that sound like a bridge? They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script as I had come to know it, when the evening ended and they said they wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept their offer. For two years after that night, they studied the scriptures together. She never felt comfortable going to church during that time. She felt threatened going to church, but in her words, they brought the church to her. And she became a believer. And God did a spiritual overhaul in her life. Every single aspect of her life changed. And it started with genuine hospitality. It started with simple acceptance. It started with love and compassion. It started with a bridge. So what is the point of this story in John chapter 8, Jesus and this woman? Is it that everybody who breaks God's law should just go free without discipline, without consequences? No, of course not. Is the point that it's okay to commit adultery, to have an affair? Of course not. Here's the point, I think. That in any community of faith that claims Jesus as Lord, there is no room for throwing stones. Is that right? Do you agree with that? In any community of faith that claims Jesus as Lord, who tries to model our lives after him, there's no room for throwing stones. You know, I I think sometimes we struggle with this because of the mob mentality. Whether it's online, whether it's embedded in our history, or it's rhetoric that we hear from people we trust, that groupthink happens, and we don't even realize that we have stones in our hands ready to throw at people. I think that's the point. That's that's not what we're about. And when we throw stones at people, when we pass judgment on others, we are misrepresenting the Jesus we say we follow. And by the way, we're also sending very mixed messages to a world that is already confused enough about God and Christianity. The church is not an exclusive organization for, for those who have it all together building walls to keep out those who don't. Or worse, throwing stones that end up causing deep pain. We want to use our words and our actions, our lives, our resources, anything and everything God gives us to build bridges with people, to make connections with people in the name of Christ. Because the truth is, we are more like that woman than we may think. Christian writer John Ortberg says, every word we speak has the power either to give a little life to people 
or to destroy a little bit of their spirit and vitality. We have the ability to offer acceptance, love, and hope. We also have the ability to judge, condemn, and wound. It's that brick. It's that stone. It's that rock. And you get to decide what you do with it. It's easier sometimes just to pick it up and throw it at someone. But when everyone else was armed and ready to hurl their judgment onto this woman, Jesus was different. He advocated for her. He supported her. He had her back. We don't know what Jesus drew in the dirt. We don't know. But sometimes I like to think that maybe he was drawing a line in the sand. Maybe Jesus was drawing a line in the sand because when you read this text, the contrasts in this text are unavoidable. They are striking. There's arrogance versus humility. Judgment versus forgiveness. Spiritual muscle versus mercy. There's critic versus advocate. The contrast go on and on. And it's almost like Jesus is drawing a line in the sand and he's saying, okay, you need to choose. Which side are you going to be on? Are you going to be on the side of critic and judge who uses your words and your actions in your life to harm people, to build walls, to keep your distance? Or are you going to join me over here showing mercy, being an advocate, being a champion of those who, by the way, are just like you. Paul also wrote in Romans 15 verse 7 accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. If you want a scripture stuck in your head this week maybe that's it. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you for the glory for the praise of God we will struggle to accept others until we acknowledge how we have been accepted by God in all of our ugly sinfulness. And now we have an opportunity to pass that on to others. The passage that Jeff read just a few moments ago, Romans 5, at just the right time, the rest of that says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us until we realize how he has accepted us, embraced us, received us, we will struggle to accept others and to embrace others. But he did that for us while we were sinners, while we were standing there in our guilt, in our shame, in our embarrassment. Now, I do think it's important to say this. Acceptance is not the same as approval. It's not the same. Sometimes we're afraid to accept someone because we think we will communicate to them or to others that we approve or condone everything they do. Jesus accepted this woman. He saw the best in her. He defended her. He supported her. But as we've already said, he challenged her. He commissioned her, leave this life of sin. He didn't condone her behavior. In fact, just the opposite. But he accepted her. He embraced her. He welcomed her. Acceptance is moving away from animosity toward compassion. It is moving from indifference and even just, in, just tolerance. It's moving beyond those things to genuine care. It's seeing the best in someone rather than pointing out the worst. 
It's having someone's back, even when that means putting a target on yours. Acceptance means dropping our bricks and rocks and extending open arms. Because I think, and I think the text shows us, that acceptance is the holy ground on which God often shows up and shapes lives. I think that's where transformation happens. When people see in the flesh, in tangible ways, God's mercy and love and grace played out in their life, when they're treated differently than the world treats them, when they're treated differently than they expect, that's when transformation happens. So which side will you be on? The side of judgment or the side of mercy? The side of critic or the side of advocate? The side of stone thrower and wall builder or bridge builder? We've talked a lot about the bridge project and as we close this morning, I just want to make one more appeal. We're actually going to watch the video in just a minute, the same video from last week. One more appeal that this week that you will embrace this opportunity to bridge, to build bridges, to make connections with those around you. This week, especially to build this vertical connection with God. This week's theme is bridges of devotion, connecting with God. I appreciate Josh's prayer, mentioning those specific things like fasting, prayer, Bible study, memorization, self-denial. There are resources available, cards on the table out there, We emailed you some information. It's in the bulletin. Please, in your family, on your own, in your Bible class, organize some of these efforts and and get out of your comfort zone and begin to make connections. So there's going to be four different weeks of emphasis, four different themes, four different sets of suggested activities. Let me just encourage you to make it a priority, to make the Bridge Project a priority. And we do this not because we want to pat each other on the back we want to give glory to God just as Romans said accepting one another just as we have been accepted bringing praise and glory to God so will you embrace that challenge this week I hope that you will if there's anything you need like resources or ideas or or clarification don't hesitate to reach out we'd be happy to help you with that any of the ministers can help you with that as we wrap up today we do want to offer an invitation an opportunity for you to extend a hand and ask for help. And maybe like the two we witnessed at the beginning of our service, you're ready to become a child of God, be baptized into Christ because you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you want to live your life to honor him. We want to to help you make that happen today and celebrate that with you. Maybe we can encourage you, pray for you. You can go to our prayer page or you can come down forward if you're here today as we stand together and sing.